This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, so we have tried to uh, break up this Energy Sense uh, recording because we, we, we had a really good conversation, Brian, with uh, Dr. Stephen Nell on scenarios, and I think we wound up having so much fun that we wound up going longer than, uh, than we, we normally do. Way too much fun. <laughs> and we even, our, our our cast of characters on the podcast changed where Rachel uh, had to leave for, for another appointment in the middle of the call. And, and we had, I think, two children join us, uh, but before the end of the recording. So so uh, where things roll, we're always very dynamic, Hill. Just taking it as it comes. Absolutely. So so without further ado, we will get into part one, um, where where we discuss the, the application of scenario planning to a, a post-COVID world with, with Dr. Stephen Nell and uh, bring back part two uh, next week. All right, welcome to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to covering topics that lie on the intersection of finance and energy markets. I'm Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Brian Doherty and Rachel Beaver. How are you all? Great, Hill, thanks. Good, thanks, Hill. And Rachel, I think you may have to uh, sneak out of our recording early today, so, so we will uh, enjoy the time that we have with you, but, but if you do have to leave early, uh, Thank you for participating in the beginning. No problem at all. Very disappointed to be leaving such an interesting topic so early, I'm afraid. Yeah, it is an interesting topic, and I've been pretty excited about this. Um, we're joined today by Dr. Stephen Nell, who's one of the senior leaders of IHS Markets Climate Energy Scenarios Research. Stephen, how are you? Yeah, doing really well, really well, Hill. Thanks very much. It's uh, great to be with you today. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess before we get into the discussion, there's a couple you know, interesting trivia points that, that you, you you mentioned to me last week or a couple of weeks ago when we were talking um, about your close kinmanship, I suppose, with uh, two of IHS's uh, more recognized corporate authorities, one with uh, our CEO, Lance Ugla. Both of you share a, uh, I guess, a fandom for the Arsenal Football Club. This is correct, yes. And we're both uh, lapsed Canadians, you might say, having uh, chosen to build a new life in the old world, um, but uh, originating in the new. Um, so, yeah, we're, uh, you know, kindred spirits, you might say. I'm a lapsed Canadian as well. Really? Oh, well, wow. Okay. I, do you know what? I No, I'm not going to call myself a lapsed Canadian. I'm, a, I'm still... Tried and true Canadian. I just happen to reside in the United States of America. Well, I got I got called out by someone from Toronto for wearing a uh, Zion Williamson New Orleans Pelicans jersey the other day. She happened uh, to be a Raptors fan. And we were talking about the game, and she was like, "You're wearing the wrong colors." And I was like, "I've been gone almost 30 years. I moved to the United Kingdom as a schoolboy in uh, the summer of 1991. So, despite the dulcet tones that I'm still, you know, somewhat uh, well known for, you know, it's, I've been gone forever. I love, you know, it doesn't uh, matter. Doesn't matter how many. Well, years clearly, even away. Clearly, Canadians want to make was, sure that their own stay stay really well connected. It's it's a thing. Well, I, I in my defense, I did call the sweep of the Nets uh, <laughs> in my bracket, so I'm feeling pretty good about how the Raptors are performing right now. And um, I, you know, like I, I have a Leafs jersey from Matt Sundin. <laughs> she was like, that doesn't count. It doesn't draw any water whatsoever. So yeah. Um, Great graphic. Um, the uh, social distancing since 1967. There's a 
picture of a Leafs jersey and then a picture of the Stanley Cup, which I think is pretty, <laughs> pretty, That's actually brilliant. pretty amusing um, for some, but not for all. Be that be that as it may. Yeah, it's been a, uh, an interesting journey to suddenly find oneself, you know, working for a company that's led by somebody who uh, I share so much with. It's it's one of the things I think that makes uh, IHS uh, market kind of special that you, you you look around and you find those associations amongst uh, your colleagues. And, you know, it's one of the ties that bind, you might well, say. Well, and so the other one, it almost sounds made up, but, but I think you got interested in IHS while reading the prize in undergrad. Yeah, so this is this is quite an interesting story because I've got the honor and privilege of working alongside uh, Dan Jurgen. So I my my background was in politics and international relations, focused mostly on sustainability issues in undergraduate years. You know, thinking about how uh, concern for the environment had evolved over time, different environmental regimes, and really what the what the politics of climate change looked like alongside you know big broad traditions of how we understand you know, the social domain and the international system. And um, after my master's in IR at the, uh, at the LSE, I went to work for the UN Development Program in Croatia. Just a great experience. It was actually able to put into practice a lot of what we had discussed in more abstract, theoretical or historical terms. So I was suddenly living the life driving around in one of those uh, UN Land Rovers, um, just the office of UNDP was just below Carla Del Ponte's office for uh, the war tri uh, uh, crimes tribunal. And we felt, you know, in some cases in Croatia in 2000, when I was there, it felt like the conflict in the former Yugoslavia had ended the day before. It had that kind of prescience. But yeah, to pass the time when I wasn't trying to lift weights with uh, U.S. Marines, um, hilarious, given, you know, my fairly slight build. I'm a cyclist for very good reason, right? But back in the day, that was the way you did things. Um, I got a, the great chance to read um, tomes that I'd long kind of thought of as a challenge to be risen to, like Ulysses, which uh, on the nights when I wasn't, you know, kind of doing project activity, I spent at least, I think it was March reading Ulysses in, in that year of two. 2000. And then, yeah, I got the prize and I started reading it and I've long had a history or an interest rather in the like in history in a general sense as a way to understand the future. You must look back and have a, an appreciation of where we've been. That's one of the reasons. Well, that's one of the rules I've lived my life by, but also one of the reasons why I chose some of the subjects of study that I did. And I'm reading this book, The Prize, and I'm thinking, so this is where power in the international system comes from. This is where the friction with the questions of sustainability that I'd been exploring previously um, was derived from. And that, you know, if you start thinking about energy in a historical context, you understand that certain forms of energy deliver unique yields that are very well suited to certain types of economic activity. And you can't just wish that away. And I, I had actually begun, it was kind of a, you know, a real light bulb moment to be like, oh my goodness, so this is, this is an account of how our civilization, you know, the lifestyle I enjoyed in Canada growing up, but maybe the importance of petrol uh, and gasoline as a, as a fuel for the way of life that I was fortunate enough to enjoy, but also why we weren't changing it. You know, why? where was the resistance to the suggestion of supply, uh, substitutability, or how, you know, from the Rio conventions and then through Kyoto, we talked a lot about addressing climate change, but it really struggled to. And I think ultimately what the prize taught me was that energy has a way of being um, a unique contribution to production functions, that it can be the sort of the commodity that enables all other commodities. And Dan rendered that in such accessible 
you know, historically grounded but really accessible terms that suddenly the world made a lot of sense to me in a way which it hadn't really before. So fast forward, um, you know, I, I basically it inspired me to leave the UN and to come back into academic work and, and basically was one of the cornerstones of my own PhD, which is on the history of energy systems, how they evolve and what rules emerge in kind of a broader economic context from those historical performances that Dan explored in the prize to get to the point where, all oh, right, well, there's a reason why kind of political economy functions as it does. It's about not just who controls the resources, but how the use of resource and energy consumption contributes to certain kind of economic performances and indeed social momentum over time. So in a way, Dan inspired me to do my own doctorate. And lo, you know, I've ended up working for, you know, a company where he's a thought leader and he, you know, he reads my work and helps make it better. <laughs> and I can't tell you, you know, the part of me that looks back and still, I can't believe I'm lucky enough to have be my story. It's, it's well, absolutely remarkable, Hill. And so, so in that, that I, I think that you and your team in the Scenarios Group have one of the most fun and interesting jobs uh, within IHS, the ability to approach things from a scenario basis. And, and I imagine that many of our listeners don't know exactly what, I mean, we, we speak of it here as if we all know it, and I suppose we do. But for, for those out there in the internet world who, who don't know scenario planning, could you explain it in a nutshell of, of what it is and why it's useful? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that it's not a forecast. Like the terms can be used somewhat fungibly uh, or interchangeably rather. But, you know, basically a big distinction that we tend to make is that forecasts are really statistical summaries of kind of an expert opinion. And you focus a lot on certainty. You're basically projecting from a, a quantitative base of data into, you know, qualitative terms, trying to understand the future uh, or at least anticipate it. Um, scenarios are more narrative driven. And it's really, a, a, in a way, a description of what's a, a plausible future. We think a lot about where are the strategic risks in the, you know, in the context of, you know, a lot of the work we do, the global economy, in the energy, in the evolution of different technologies. And, you know, it is kind of a, a, we're highlighting strategic risks is one of the big things that we do, but it also conversely can be seen as a roadmap for different types of, of opportunities. In order for that to be the case, well, you have to put on some kind of almost unconventional the thinking caps. You have to explore things that are not just the business as usual or the most likely, but what if types of questions. And it this allows you with, with a kind of a. It starts with a big idea, and then puts together detailed things that might happen as a result of that big idea. Is that? Yeah, that's correct. We have um, actually the, like a structure in which a number of key questions are explored. You know, one of the big ones that I'm hoping to talk with you guys today about is, you know, how quickly uh, and with what results do we respond to the challenge of climate change? You know, it's, a, it's absolutely a massive variable, but a couple of these big ideas uh, and principal questions then enable a combination of, you know, there's you identify the key movers, you think about what the drivers are, so, you know, uh, your your agents of change. It can be um, the you know the Chinese state. It can be Tesla. It can be you know different representatives of the energy landscape today. And then you know what are the drivers going to be? Is it you know something like the uh, sustainable development goals um, or 
access to energy more generally considered? Um, you know, what are the things that qualify our future? What are those uncertainties that contribute towards certain types of risks or certain types of opportunities? And essentially, you wed our process involves uh, the development of a of a narrative that captures the way that things could be a plausible pathway for the future. That is a reference point for the modeling that we do that allows us to really break that we use to express our scenarios. But scenarios in and of themselves are, you know, really what if type of uh, type of questions. And, you know, the legacy brands of IHS market from CIRA um, to uh, Global Insight, um, you know, there's a huge pedigree and expertise when it comes to the way in which this particular tool can be deployed. And actually, you know, thinking about this year, we've used this format to understand how quickly we may come back from COVID related economic dislocation. We've thought about where the winners and losers going to be in some aspects of the green economy, you know, where we've seen elements of a green recovery, what could happen next. We've got a framework. These are the kind of questions that all your listeners are going to be confronted by in personal respects as well as professionally. So we've adopted these frameworks to essentially populate the uncertainty that we see in the international system today and render it in concrete terms that can be used for stress testing, for you know wind tunneling, different ideas, you know, anticipating risk and being nimble, you know, being able to deal with the variability of the market structures that we we find, um, and essentially be better prepared. You know, you're you're never necessarily in a you know so forecasts are kind of right or wrong. There's this narrative that uh, you know if you're in forecasting, chances are you spend a lot of your time being wrong when it comes to the the numbers and the outlooks that you've developed. One of What's the things the, that's uh, great about scenarios is they're really flexible, so they can accommodate that variability in ways forecasts don't. When the classic line is that all forecasts are wrong and some forecasts are useful, and this seems that as opposed to a focus on the forecast precision, it's more of an exercise to plan for different different outcomes of and you know an obviously uncertain future. So, so absolutely, you kind of demarcate a range, and you're able to you know stress test the merits of a given investment. You know, we spend a lot of time. the The product that I manage focuses a lot on the oil and gas sector, and you know players in that space be it, you know, the investors that are supporting upstream uh, exploration and production activity um, or the, you know, service companies that are, you know, contributing engineering expertise or indeed, you know, the, the companies themselves. Um, everybody's wondering what the future of the oil and gas business is going to look like. You know, in, we have some scenarios where, frankly, you've already seen peak global liquids demand. It was last year. Nobody talked about it. But because of the dislocation of economic activity due to uh, COVID and the way the transportation sector in particular has been impacted, well, you've got essentially now an industry that must manage smaller amount of demand. And frankly, some organizations are better prepared than others. So thinking about, you know, the ranges of different commodity prices that may define the oil market in the future, um, the way in which different types of regulatory in, uh, initiatives may impact light duty as opposed to heavy duty segments and what kind of fuel markets will we actually need in the future to to pursue some of our climate change targets well frankly these are the kinds of uh you know these are the kinds of applications in the way in which we support some of our different clients along the way but it's about you know you're never going to nail it but if if your strategy can be defensible and is resilient in the context of between like 70 and 30 dollar oil which is one of the the, the bands that our new scenarios captures, then you're, you know, you're in a safer space than if you're, you know, you're following a forecast and you're hoping for 120. 
And Stephen, that's quite different from our previous scenarios, if I remember correctly, because our previous scenarios did not have peak. Um, you know, we had three. In fact, I think we had five different uh, scenarios, depending on whether you were looking at our more traditional scenarios or our climate based scenarios. Um, but I think all of them were not necessarily seeing peak uh, peak oil quite so soon. And therefore, this must have, you know, a, a fundamental change to, to nearly all of our narratives um, going forward in what, whichever of the scenarios um, we wish to we wish to look at, which is incredibly interesting. If you're going to then pull into the, the impacts on on all of the players that you've uh, that we usually look at, whether it be governments, companies, financial players, NCOs, whatever, uh, in in our scenarios going forward. So that's really quite interesting. It means a whole new family um, farm of uh, of scenarios. Yeah, so a couple of things to say in response to that. You're right, this year is different. So the way in which we're interpreting the impact of the pandemic recession and just the very extraordinary year that 2020 has been is that the extent of dislocation of economic activity, the way emissions have come down, the way demand has been destroyed, in some cases, if you sum it up, we don't catch up. We don't get back to where we were. You know, one of the leading indicators in our planning case, uh, which we call rivalry, is global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, it's a it's a big reference point for a lot of discussions about what kind of environmental outcomes can be associated with, you know, our macro uh, projection, the way energy demand will evolve in different sectors over time, um, and the the transformation of primary energy to final energy that supports that kind of activity. And for us because of the lasting effect that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is having on some sectors of the economy and the, the nature of the rescue and response measures that we've seen, global greenhouse gas emissions in 2050 compared to our forecast last year are down 10% this year. Mm. And 10% the, is- That's the base case, the, the, the rivalry case. That's the, ba that's the base case, Hill. Mm. So this is the one that's pretty conservative in terms of its expectations of say climate policy that would be uh, another major variable to consider when we're discussing the, the pace and path of the energy transition. So 10%, just for context for your listeners, is just a little bit under um, what the United States- emitted last year, the second largest national emitter. So you're basically taking the United States out of the mix. That's the extent of the dislocation. Mm -hmm. We refer to it as a permanent loss of growth potential or a structural downgrading of economic activity and associated energy consumption and uh, related emissions. It's going to vary in different markets. In some markets, we do catch up. But globally, what we saw last year is a future that is no longer in play, and hence the importance of the scenario process and having a contemporary reference point. You know, our scenarios came out uh, last month. There are some publicly available scenarios like, um, let's say, the energy outlooks of the International Energy Agency, which are due in November. They're going to be coming out much, much later in the year. So if you need a reference, if you need a reference point for your strategy, it's better to have something that's current than that which is not. We've been joined by my son in uh, the discussion. He's looking for. He's interested in the Angry Birds Star Wars scenario, which frankly <laughs> I, I don't have a huge amount to contribute to. At least not at this point, I'm afraid. Um, although uh, ranking the various Star Wars films is something that we could devote considerable time to. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really important to understand that this year is not just about this year. This year has changed our expectations of what the future will hold.
in a, in a Stephen, profound what? sense, and, and we don't we don't come back from that. Rachel, I'm sorry, Brianna, just before we move on, yeah. the other thing I should say in terms of like a point of clarification, in our base case, liquids demand has not peaked. That is in our environmentally focused autonomy scenario. And yet, yeah. you know, that's one that European businesses say, well, that's the base case. Because mm. it's one where I see the pursuit of env environmental considerations in the public and private sectors being a governing consideration. Or it's one where I see energy efficiency opportunities tapped into. I see more EVs. I see more of a focus on local air pollution. And the net result is that energy-related emissions decline in quite a sustained fashion. In our, in our base case, it's a, it's a different story. And the peak comes later in the forecast uh, or the outlook period, I should say. Sorry, Brianna. That's OK. I was just gonna, so specifically, which expectations have changed in these new round in this new round within the base case to drive that 10% reduction in 2050 is it is it just global economic activity or is it specific to types of usage yep so global economic activity is uh, down uh, in a way we don't catch up um, with the degree of the dislocation that we've uh, that we've seen through 2020 um, there is some variance at the national level, but the global picture is one in which by 2050, we're anticipating the global economy being considerably smaller than we did last year. Like it does kind of come out a bit in the wash, that big global picture. If you look at things in regional terms, well, the outlook can be particularly profound. So I was having a scenario-based discussion with one of our clients, one of the uh, global IOCs about the outlook for Africa. And what was different this year because of COVID? And, you know, essentially a lot of the primary commodity demand and related investment in the African economy has been, you know, really profoundly interrupted by the pandemic recession and the expectation of how we will recover in our base case, at least. So uh, the GDP forecast, but for again, thinking 2050, I spent a lot of time thinking quite long term, but you know, it's, it's where some of the implications of our assumptions and the modeling is most profound. So the African economy is expected to be 16% smaller in 2050 in our base case this year compared to last year, primary energy is down 23%. So, you know, roll it up and basically the African economy is going to need almost a quarter less energy in 2050 in the base case. Now, you know, per capita income in the African context in particular is a really big one. And unfortunately, what, what the recession has done and the expected recovery is really uh, weaken expectations of some of the, the the you know the key markers that we as uh, a modeling team and when we're building our scenarios need to hit in order for certain types of energy consumption to be realistic in an African context. So there's going to be more traditional energy, and this is you know for your listeners that are thinking a lot about the demographics in Africa critical for thinking about the future of the energy economy. Yes, absolutely. But affordability and access to energy, if it's predicated on international terms, basically means that it's going to be a lot harder as things stand for Africa to tap into the opportunities for clean, reliable, affordable energy compared to even last year. And the prospects last year were not fantastic. So the global GDP story is a big one. Which economies have been impacted as well is also really big in what sectors of the economy. So it's been, it's been the biggest economies. The United States has been profoundly affected. China, 
recovered fairly quickly, but still with a notable dislocation. So it's some of the economies that are real bellwethers that, um, you know, are where the uh, the pandemic recession in the short term dislocation is, has been most profound. And that carries on and cascades in expectations of the future. Also, different sectors, you know, industries down. That means powers down, powers down kind of globally. That's got some pretty profound implications for expectation, particularly of thermal power demand. So again, if listeners are thinking about, well, I've got a business that's focused a lot on thermal power and the indicators are that there's going to be more demand for electricity in some emerging markets. And it makes a huge amount of sense for me to back the providers of that. Well, that was a story that really resonated a few years ago and perhaps persisted to a degree with some you know, fairly weak policies serving to, let's say, interrupt that strategy. But now, you know, with some of the industrial activity dislocation, some of the underlying weakness in the thermal business model compared to more compelling, socially acceptable, renewable power projects, for example, well, you know, the, we're, we're seeing some pretty big shifts in the strategies of different players. One of the things that um, reinforces the value of scenarios, you know, our clients in power and other uh, you know, oil and gas, other sectors of the economy, use our scenarios and others to really understand some of, you know, the variability. And um, one of the narratives that's emerging that's really compelling is, you know, renewable focused power generation to ge- to create not just electricity, but also hydrogen, you know, kind of a power to gas narrative, which ticks a couple of different boxes if you're seeking to decarbonize segments of the economy, residential heating, transportation, hydrogen's got a lot of applications. But that story is another challenge to that traditional thermal um, generating strategy. And we've just done a survey of the 50 largest power companies around the world and the amount of divestment of traditional thermal assets for the sake of raising funds for renewable investments. Well, you know, your listeners would definitely be familiar with the way utility segments have performed relative to, say, the oil and gas sector in a general sense, those cleaner, more renewable-focused utility groups have been outperforming their peer group. So the signal to the investors is, comes from policy, see it socially when you sit around the dinner table with your kids, and now you're seeing it in the fundamentals in the, the market as well. And you can see, and the causality you know, flows through the different scenarios from you know, an immediate impact in 2020, and the, you need to explore different ways to recover. But one of the more compelling is that, you know, we've seen some, some sectors, transport for oil demand, you know, power for traditional thermal generation, really be knocked off course by this pandemic. And the results are there for all to see today, but 30 years down the road in 2050 as well. And the transport for oil demand, so, so, so you say that falls off in our base case. And, you know, a, a lot of the mainstream media is talking about things like the, the death of the city, uh, you know, as a result of COVID. And I think even uh, Jerry Seinfeld had an op-ed in the New York Times today saying New York Times isn't, or New York City is not going anywhere. Um, but but with that comes the rise of automobiles or the re-rise of automobiles as people, you know, start to get bothered about public transportation or take public transportation less, you know, that there's legislation around Uber and Lyft and all of that. So, so we, in spite of all of these potential more cars on the road or an aversion to public transportation, we see a structural hit to, uh, in, you know, the, the transport as fuel demand. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you can unpack it from a couple different points of view. So um, aviation, planning on flying anytime 
soon <laughs> hail like i'm not um no. you know we've we've had to make adjustments in our traditional outreach schedule we're not hosting the events and going to see clients in different parts of the world because uh because of public health concerns um so you know the the dislocation in aviation and what that means to you know part of the liquids business has been profound and um will be slow to recover we've seen that in a generalized sense, from the way the sector performs after recessions, you know, business travel can be slow to get back on its feet. This is, you know, and I think the the Great Recession of 2008-9 provides some good reference points for for listeners. But it's really not coming back in a predictable fashion, in part because, well, we're able to hold, you know, a discussion like this in how many different parts of the world, you know, I'm in London, you guys are in North America, like we're, you know, we're able to bridge the gap in some compelling ways, which basically means the traditional travel spend and focus on aviation is not no, well, let's just say that it's no longer essential to conduct business affairs and deliver insights. So I think that's one part of it. As individuals, well, I think you have to consider access to vehicles in a culturally or kind of uh, market-specific context. You know, I'm based here in the city of London where not that many of my peers own vehicles. Generally, families do, but, you know, that's, that's by no means a given because it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. to to run a vehicle in a European context in general. And, um, you know, if nothing else, being able to maybe separate the nice to have from the essentials has been part of many families' adjustment to, you know, being furloughed, changes in revenue, and just the fact that there's been a lot of dislocation in many parts of the economy where people don't have jobs anymore, let alone cars to drive to jobs. So I think that, you know, we're seeing that feed feed through as well. The death of the city, you know, in flight, there's no doubt that there's going to be a certain persona that's like, I can get out now. I, I don't have to commute anymore. I can I can flee, you know, the big smoke or however you would describe your uh, urban conurbation. You know, for me, I must admit, even in a, in a personal sense, we're starting to talk about it as a family in ways that we never have before, because maybe I go to the office now once a week, something to that effect for the next maybe year, you know, it does breed a certain type of behavior. You now have an option. There's an opportunity to have that greener life, uh, you know, or, you know, whatever that may look like. And yet cities are also responding by doing some different things. So here in the city of London, you don't need as many streets. Okay, great. You know what we're going to do? We're going to put tables out on the streets and the the Westminster Council has done this fantastic job of putting out you know essentially opportunities for restaurateurs you know publicans whomever cafe owners to absorb part of the street and you know the place I go for a coffee uh, and a slice of banana bread if I've done enough laps on my bicycle a couple mornings a week and now our favorite cafe uh, basically has got tables out front and it's in the middle of Soho and you know no problems the council is very supportive and it means that suddenly the capacity of the place is back where it was before with social distancing observed and you know it's great for a british summer you know such as it is it may be slightly tougher to execute in winter but i've really been inspired particularly over the last say six weeks when it was okay you know out of lockdown what's your business going to look like people are finding new solutions and that will breed, you know, maybe different kinds of consumption patterns. We've got some scenarios where we come back quite optimistically. We've also got some scenarios where people are like, let's just wait and see. And the, you know, the delta for energy demand is still broader. 
there are definitely in a North American context, like I know what it was like. I wasn't getting anywhere in my Southern Ontario suburbs if it wasn't in my parents' car. And, you know, I think that now with, you know, certain types of um, public transport being problematized, you see it on the tube here too. Like the numbers are down. If you have a car, you're likely to. Hell, I can't tell you how much money it would cost for me to drive, you know, my little Q2 down to the office and park it there all day. But it's a lot. And, um, hey, I don't even think there's anywhere to park the thing. So, frankly, you know, we, we assume that there's a certain behavior that would say this is how I'm going to respond to this, you know, pandemic. And then at the same time, there's the reality. And I, I think we got to be careful about generalizing it. The way our oil team and they've done sterling work has, has thought about this is. Where can it be made to work and where are there alternatives? I see a lot more cyclists on the road. I see people walking, cycling. You know, we've got these electric scooters that I don't know why they're not regulated. Like uh, some guy almost knocked me over going about 40 the other day. So, you know, maybe there's a bit of regulation that'll creep into it, but there's alternatives emerging. Mobility, you know, this is one of the things that thinking about Dan's work as we were talking about at the top of the discussion, there are certain rules. Mobility is one of the rules of the energy system. You're not going to deny it. It's part of what, you know, it's part of modernity as an experience. But the, you know, the kind of unforeseeable substitution effect that the pandemic is having within the energy value chain means that you need to have more than one answer. Hence why we have five scenarios, because there's winners and losers on the basis of a lot of different variables there. That concludes the first part of our conversation today around energy scenarios. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed side A of our recording. And for all those interested, please flip the disc to slide B and join us again next week for a further conversation with Dr. Stephen Nell around the energy scenarios and everything that we can expect out of those through to 2050. Yeah, and slide B gets us into uh, some of the details of the energy scenarios and, and where there might be different applications across uh, different regions uh, globally. So it's a, an interesting conversation that I hope you'll all tune in for. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.